Welcome to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and the best moments in life. This is a place where we hear from people who've created a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. My own journey raising a child with a rare disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is the inspiration for this. But this isn't just about Duchenne or my story. We all have something we're carrying. That's just life. So this is a place for all of us, for conversation, for connection, and to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Today, I'm talking with Annalise Williams. Annalise is a university student and is one of the most extraordinary people I've ever had the honor of getting to know. She has not one, but two rare diseases. She's battled an eating disorder, and she has endured the cruelty of her peers. And although there is sadness and there's struggle in her story, hers is not a sad story. Hers is the story of a young woman who is a powerhouse. It's the story of a young woman who made her way through unimaginable circumstances to come out on the other side as an advocate, a change maker, and an eloquent, gifted writer and speaker. The words of others nearly destroyed Annalise, but she believes that it was also the power of words, words from other people that were filled with compassion and love that helped her heal. She is determined to be an advocate and a voice not only for herself, but for other girls who need someone in their corner. Let's get started. Hi, Annalise. It's good to have you here with us today. Hi, Marisa. I'm really happy to be here and get to share my story with everyone. It's a beautiful story, and I am, I'm glad that more people are going to get to hear from you. So, We're going to do things a little bit differently today. You're going to share an incredibly beautiful essay that you wrote. I heard it shared out loud. Before we get started, will you just share a little bit with us about yourself and your background and where you are in your life right now? Yeah, I'm a Purdue student right now. Purdue is a university in West Lafayette, Indiana, and that's where I was born and raised. So I've been here pretty much my entire life. I'm an identical twin, and both of us have rare diseases and have more recently been impacted by them and jumped into the advocacy world, which has been a really cool shift getting to unlock the power of words, which I'll talk about more later. I'm really excited that you're getting involved in advocacy So you and I met because I was doing some coaching for a group of young advocates who want to use their story to help impact policy changes, make the world a better place for other people. And you shared during one of our sessions, an essay, and it was about you and your life. And it was so incredibly powerful. So I'm going to ask you to share that with us today. And then we're going to talk a little bit after, and we can can kind of dig into some of some of the topics that you talk about, but I'm just going to go ahead and turn the floor over to you to share your story with us. Thank you. At some level, we all know the power of words, how when a coworker makes fun of you, it can make you question yourself, or how when your best friend says, I'm here for you, it can turn your day around. From an early age, I too thought I understood the power of words, but I thought that the power words had was the power to hurt. I would take in other people's words and make them my identity. Zombie hand. Gimpy. What is wrong with you? You'll never amount to anything. Ugly. 
Yuck, get that away from me. I thought I saw you in the hall the other day. Then I realized it was just a trash can. By third grade, I asked my teacher to sit in the corner, facing the wall away from the other children. I didn't know what was wrong with me, but something had to be. By middle school, I would lock myself in bathrooms and cry. Stare at myself, asking that same thing. What was wrong with me? In high school, I would write the words on mirrors. I thought maybe if they were written all over me, it would all make sense, but it never made it easier. By my senior year, I developed an eating disorder. I needed something to numb the pain of my brokenness. I stopped eating and I stopped talking. The words had destroyed me. And in all that time, two things never happened. No one stood up for me and I didn't stand up for myself. What happened at home stayed at home and what happened at school stayed at school. And the pain, it stayed inside of me. I had learned so deeply the power words had to hurt, but never saw the power that they had to heal. In February of 2022, rare disease entered my life yet again, and I found myself laying in an ICU bed. In that room, I experienced a profound helplessness. A mass smother in my face, forcing air in and out of my lungs. Catheters kept my bladder from exploding. A tube pushed nourishment into my stomach and a central line dripped life into my veins. There was no more hiding behind soccer trophies or diplomas. I couldn't even hide behind a smile. I was disabled. I couldn't walk, I couldn't talk, I couldn't eat, I couldn't move. I was helpless. The absence of my own words made the silence in my life so loud. Doctors would walk in, make me cry, and leave. I remember one of them saying, if I make this choice wrong, you are going to die. Another one telling me that I would never get better, that I would be a quadriplegic for life. It wasn't fact, it was just ignorance because I was too rare for them to care. They couldn't see me as anything more than my broken body. In those moments, I wanted to yell at them, tell them I'm more than a patient. I'm a college student, an athlete, and a sister, but I couldn't. I felt like that same voiceless seven-year-old I once was, trapped in the confines of other people's words. Over the next month, I would walk a terrifying medical journey, but perhaps the most painful part of it all was this feeling of defeat, like the world and its words had finally won. But then, in the same room that I experienced that profound helplessness, I experienced something powerful. The power words had to heal. An army of nurses rallied around me. It was more than bedside care. It was love and it was advocacy. They would march up to the doctors and tell them that they were wrong, that they were failing me and needing to do better. They would do their research when the doctors wouldn't. They would tell them what tests to run and what medicine to give me. But it wasn't just that. They treated me as a person. One nurse came in on her day off and brought her cousin who was a hairdresser with her just to trim my hair. I couldn't even hold my head up, but she saw my humanity. Another came and sat by me as I cried. She rubbed my temples and sang to me. They showed me the power of having someone to advocate for you. Their words didn't hurt. They said, I am fighting for you, fight for me. They said, you inspire me, I'm proud of you. And I realized that yes, words could hurt, but goodness, could they heal. In that room, my advocacy journey began. As I regained my voice, I spoke up for myself. I remember when I moved to the rehab hospital, I was not physically strong enough to do anything but whisper, but it didn't matter. I told a clinician, if you can't see me as a person and treat me with respect, I would like a different person to work with me. 
It was like the air shattered. And boy, did the world listen. As I physically grew stronger, my voice did too. I learned that while advocacy is fighting for myself in a doctor's office, it's also sharing my story with the everyday people I meet. And it's talking with senators about important pieces of legislation. But I also learned that advocacy doesn't have to be big and flashy. Sometimes it is just spending hours sitting with someone who is hurting, making phone call after phone call on their behalf. Advocacy is more than talking, it is listening. Advocacy is artwork and advocacy is research. But most importantly, advocacy is not hiding my identity. It is showing the world that yes, I have a rare disease, but I am a human just like anyone else. There is nothing wrong with me. With time, I realized that when I share my story, sometimes there are people who will take advantage of my vulnerability. They will use their words to hurt. But other people, they will see my vulnerability and they will listen. And in the moments when someone hears my story and responds with hurt, I think about my why. I ask myself, what if someone had told seven-year-old me, I see your hurt? It's okay to be different. Your scars are beautiful. What if someone had said you are worth so much to me that I'm going to talk to my senator about you? What would she have heard? I realized that what little me needed was a voice, and now I have one. What she needed more than anything was an advocate, and I can be one. She needed someone like any of you who is willing to say, I see you and I'll fight for you. And I can do that too. I might get hurt, but if I can even help one person heal, it will be so worth it. I can't make it better for my younger self, but I know that little Annalise is not the only one. Right now, there is a little girl who needs someone to stick up for her. Someone whose parents aren't fighting for her the way they should. Someone who is fighting a broken healthcare system. A girl who feels voiceless and is questioning if there is something wrong with her. Someone who thinks that words only hurt. There's a rare little girl in a broken world. I don't know her name and I don't know her story. And honestly, I probably never will. But that doesn't change the fact that I want to be her voice. Oh, Annalise, I've heard this once before and hearing the second time it is equally, if not more powerful. I have so many emotions, so many things running through my head and and through my heart. And the most powerful thing I can think of right now is I just wish that I could give you a big hug. (laughs) That is just incredibly, incredibly beautiful and so insightful and brave and honest. And I just want as many people as possible to hear the beautiful voice that you are. It's, It's amazing. And I know there's so much here to this, but I want to go back a little bit kind of begin at the beginning, so to speak, and talk about some of these things that you shared with us. You really talk about the power of words. You talk about it within the context of your rare diseases, but I think it's really applicable to all of us when we talk about the power of our words. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Why were people calling you names? 
So I had a complex vascular anomaly, and in my case, it was an arterial venous malformation. So that basically means that there were extra arteries and veins that weren't supposed to be there. And they can happen pretty much anywhere in your body. But for me, it looked like a golf ball sized mass on the uh, back of my left hand. And so my thumb was like a bluish purple, and it was very visible. It was painful. But other than that, it really didn't bother me when I was young. But other people would notice it and kids are kids and they'll Mm -hmm. ask questions they'll make comments and they don't always say things that are super appropriate and I was a very impressionable little girl so I really soaked all those words in and as I said kind of made it my identity and really felt kind of othered by this hand yeah And how did that evolve for you? I know that, of course, kids can be so cruel. And I know that there's such an effort, you know, to bring light to that and to focus on not bullying people. I think, you know, you're in your 20s. So we're talking about, you know, at least 15 years ago that this was happening. I don't think there was much awareness. And I think the school age years are just tough for social issues. And I think that anything that sets us apart compounds that. How did that change in middle school for you? So it's interesting. With my treatment for the vascular anomaly, it became less visible over time. So the biggest it was was in second to third grade. That was when it was most visible. So as I grew up, it almost became less of an issue. And it the power of words started to impact me in different ways, kind of like what you mentioned with it being more than just rare disease. It's really true about everyone. So bullying became kind of more of a broader thing about just who I was. And again, it was just probably somewhat kids not knowing how to interact with other people, but it became a lot less about my rare disease. And then in my previous year of college, this past winter, I got sick with Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is an autoimmune disorder following a virus that causes ascending paralysis. And so all of a sudden, like my world just completely shifted. And once again, I had this very visible condition. I've returned to school this semester, but I'm still a wheelchair user and college kids still don't know how to interact with people with disabilities. Adults, professors, like everybody is learning how to interact with people that are different. And I have a great memory and I remember the words people say and The words people say can impact you in one of two ways. They'll either stick with you because they were so loving and caring and are like, how can I help you? How can I make this world as easy for you to access? Or there's the people who say things that hurt you and kind of attack your identity. And those just really make a big difference. So I've kind of experienced the power of words in three phases of my life two of which centered on rare disease, but in the middle, like the high school years, were about much more broader like identity struggles. So I want to talk about college because I'm I'm a mom of a college student with rare disease. And so I'm navigating this right now, just kind of really from the outside looking in. But I wanna I wanna go back a little bit first to high school. And and you just mentioned it was about, you know, kind of some broader things for you. And you talk about in here that you developed an eating disorder to sort of numb that pain. Can you just share with us how that how that evolved for you, how you got help and what it looked like? I know that you you advocate for that as well. And I think it's such an important conversation to talk about when somebody is okay with talking about it openly as you are. Yeah. So eating disorders 
We think of them a lot as body image issues, but what I've learned from my course of treatment and interacting with other patients is that very rarely are they a body image issue. A lot of them stem from either trauma or bullying or some kind of like interpersonal issue. So for me, that was really true. There were various forms of trauma in my childhood and my eating disorder became a source of something that I could control. I couldn't control how the world was impacting me. I couldn't control what they were telling or what they were doing to me, but I could control my body. And I found that sense of control really comforting. And as you restrict, it does numb emotions because it's shutting down some of your processes when your brain isn't nourished properly. And while that's really damaging, it is effective. And so eventually my senior year of high school, I was hospitalized in a residential program. And that was kind of the beginning of getting out of the eating disorder, finding safety to be myself and a place that I could own my identity and not have to worry about protecting myself from the world. And it was really finding that safety that allowed me to recover from my eating disorder. And at least I think for so many people, the way the world is right now, it does not feel like a very safe place. What contributes to a sense of safety? When you talk about that in terms of being in a residential treatment facility for your eating disorder, what kinds of things contributed to that sense of safety that allowed you to start to heal and get healthy? Yeah, I think a lot about safety and it's such a great question that you ask. And I think it's a lot of different things. I think a lot of time when we think of safety, our gut reaction is there's nobody like actively hurting us in physical safety, but safety is like so much more than that. And it ties into this power of words. You need to be emotionally safe. You need to feel love and supported and understand that you can be yourself. So yes, it's very important to be physically safe and have those needs met, but it's equally important to just have that sense of like security in your identity and in the people around you, this like sense of trust almost. Mm -hmm. As a young girl, we're talking about your high school and your early college years, which are, you know, really fragile times for, for most people. How did you find that? How did you find that sense of safety? And that's maybe, I guess I'd say a sense of community. And how did you create a world for yourself? where things looked better than they had for a long time? I think it comes down to the concept of chosen family. And it's exactly what it sounds like. That there are people who are your family legally. And then there are the people who treat you how society says the family should, that they love and accept you. And they just surround you with love no matter what you're going through. And I don't have some magic answer of how I found that. I think It came through the process of being vulnerable with people, sharing my story, stopping trying to hide and create this image, which I had done my whole childhood and high school years of just trying to be someone who I'm not. And when you start being who you actually are and sharing what you've been through, the people who stick with you and stay by your side and continually support you and don't give up on you, those are your people. Those are the safe people in your life. And sometimes people who you thought were safe turn out not to be what you thought they were, or maybe in one phase of their your life, they were a very safe person and your story has changed, your identity has changed and they aren't anymore. And kind of trying to really understand people's interactions with you and being able to hold your own boundaries is really important for creating that sense of safety. 
Mm-hmm. It's a huge evolution from a young girl who was teased and bullied and made fun of to who I see sitting before me here today. And it's, you know, a, an amazing young woman who is eloquent and beautiful and healthy and and yet still has the capacity with for everything you've gone through to want to help other people and change the world and give of yourself when there there weren't necessarily people who were taking care of you and giving to you when you needed it most. Gosh, Annalise, I just think, oh, do we need more? We need more people like you in the world. And and quite frankly, I will tell you this, I'm the mom of three kids, 26, 23, and, and almost 20. And one of the reasons I'm so excited to share your story is that we hear so much in, I'll say the media today, social media on the news, a lot of times are negative about our kids in their teens and early twenties and young adults. And, and it makes me furious sometimes because I think they're generalizing. I think it's quite frankly, a form of bullying. And I think there are more people and young adults like you than, than who aren't wanting to change the world. And I think that people in my generation, I'm in my fifties, we can, we can do better in how we create safety and we welcome all ages and generations to, you know, be a part of conversations and advocacy. It's very near and dear to me because I have I have kids your age, and um, I think you're amazing. And I think the hope for the future lies with with people in your generation. Quite frankly, so my my hats off to you. You know, I have a lot of respect and admiration for you and for your story. Let's talk for a minute. I want to talk about the nurses in the hospital. So you referenced in um, 2022. So this was just about what are about six to eight months ago, your gain bar, do we say flared up? Is it a flare? How do you describe that when it's active? So it is a monophasic illness, which basically means typically it happens once. And as you get better, it's not expected to relapse. So this was the first time Guillain-Barre entered my life and hopefully the only time the relapse rate, I believe is around 10%. Okay. So it was unexpected. You didn't see it coming. It was completely unexpected. So you talk about the nurses in the hospital and that was a, a huge shift for you. It, it, transformational, the, the love and the advocacy you received. I talk about love a lot. And I think sometimes we reference it as the emotion, like it's a feeling, but I always say that love really is is a, a verb and, and love is action. It's how you treat people. What did that look like in the hospital for you? I think there were just so many things. It was all of the little moments in between the job description of being a nurse. So yes, they had to give meds. They had to like do certain tasks, but it was how they did those tasks. So maybe they would give meds, but they would do it in a way that would really see and respect me as a person and try to be as painless as possible. Sometimes they would play music or offer their own music taste to kind of interact with me and give me some of that sense of like connection. And I think it was for me, a really big part of it was just seeing me where I was at and like really encouraging me, saying, I understand what you're going through is really, really hard. And I see that and you are doing an incredible job and just not giving up. Honestly, there were times when I wanted to give up. It was an extremely hard couple of months having basically my life taken away from me. I was a very active person and all of a sudden I couldn't move. And that is very challenging. And while I try to be really optimistic, there are moments 
when the pain and the loneliness just like kind of surround you. And I think that's when the action love comes in even stronger because they fill those moments and they try to make that setting more human rather than hospital. Yeah, I've experienced it myself and I've experienced it with um, with my son, Joseph. So you talk a bit in your essay about the doctors who, you know, walked in and sounds like they were very clinical, maybe a little bit abrupt, not taking a lot of time with you. And you talk about, I was too rare for them to care. So, and this is certainly not an indictment against doctors in general. You had some negative experiences. I think we all know some incredible doctors. I know that I do. So I think it varies just as human nature varies, but I'm curious how you reconcile, because this is now just eight months ago and you've had this journey for years where people are not caring for you in the way that they should have, or the way that you needed, you weren't experiencing the kind of love and advocacy that you needed. And now you're in a life-threatening situation in the hospital. How do you reconcile that, Annalise, that the people that you look to, to take care of you, not just the doctors, but in other aspects of life, how do you reconcile that the people you think you're going to count on are not the ones who show up for you. I think it's really challenging. And I definitely think it's something I still struggle with because it's not only what I want for myself, like everybody wants people to love and care about them, but it's also like society has told us that those people are supposed to do that. And so when they're not, it is really hard to wrap your mind around and not let it affect your self-esteem and how you view yourself as a person. I think for me, the biggest thing that I have done is try to change my perception. I can't change who's supposed to do what and not doing it. That's not Mm -hmm. within my control, but I can change how I think about it. And instead of saying like, this person isn't doing this and getting mad about that, I look at the people who are doing it. I don't have to honor everybody that society says I should honor as a specific role, I can choose those people. Again, the concept of chosen family, it's not only family, like I can choose to see my nurses as my main caregivers. They're able to talk to the doctors and advocate for me. I So I respect doctors and I will respect those people, but it doesn't mean I have to perceive them as the only people in power and the only people in control of my situation. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said. Yeah, that's a beautiful take on it. So Annalise, I'm going to just jump a little bit and it kind of has to do with what you just said um, related to what you just said. We live in a culture, I believe, of that's pretty chaotic in terms of people's ability to have discussions and to disagree. But interestingly, and maybe ironically, we also live in a culture of positivity. And sometimes I say toxic positivity where, you know, people say you can do anything, anything is possible, good vibes only. I interviewed a dad of two boys with Duchenne a while ago. And he said, you know, anything's not possible. My boys have Duchenne. They're not going to play football. They're not going to be astronauts. Like that literally isn't possible. And he said, and why do we have to say that? Why can't we say anything's possible for me? If in my situation, a lot of things are possible, but I don't have to, I don't have to ascribe to this positivity where it, it becomes almost like you're constantly 
failing or you're struggling, like, well, why isn't it possible for me? Or why isn't it working? And you, you've really faced a lot of things in your young lifetime. So how do you foster your own dreams and what you believe to be true and right while acknowledging some of the things you've been through and some of the limitations that you have because of your rare disease? I think that's a very complex question. And it comes down to owning my story, but honoring who I am as and who I want to be. And so I won't push away the feelings and emotions and I will not hide who I am or my identity. And I think that gives me a sense of being grounded in reality. I'm not going to be someone who I'm not in my everyday relationships because that makes it's the burden of toxic positivity. I don't need to help other people feel better about my situation. I can own my own situation and let them process it how they're going to process it. So I think that's been a big thing. And then also, I have a tendency to, when I set my mind to do something, just how I am, I'm very stubborn. It can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. But it means that I'm going to try my best to figure out a way. And then at the end of the day, there are some things that aren't going to be possible. And I think that comes down to once I have tried everything and really exhausted the reasonable possibilities, working towards acceptance. This is my life. There are certain things I can't change. And those things I just have to accept or I'm going to spend my whole life being angry and frustrated that that's not who I am. And I don't that's not what I want to be. I don't want to be angry and frustrated about who I'm not because there are so many great things I can be in this world. And so I'm going to choose to head in that direction. I love that. I think that might be what you just described might be the definition of being resilient and what that looks like in in real life is that level of acceptance and moving forward and moving on. I think I say it and it's absolutely who I try to be, but it's hard. And I think that's an important thing to recognize. These things aren't easy. They like come with grief and everybody faces them. It's not something specific to rare disease or bullying or trauma. Like none of those things have to be the case for it. There are some things that aren't going to work out and that's hard. And it's important to take this time to recognize that and grieve that. Just don't sit in it. I agree. I agree. That is life. Life is hard. It doesn't mean it's bad, right? I mean, that's just the way it goes. And I think, um, yeah, your acknowledgement, your deep understanding of that is pretty amazing, especially the fact that you're you know, in college and you have your whole life in front of you and I just think your take on it, the realism is really refreshing and and important for people to hear. Annalise, I would say that your words and your spirit, your take on life is really inspiring to a lot of people. Who, Who inspires you? There's a long list and there's a short list. I think there's a lot of figures and people who inspire me, but at the end of the day, the people who I truly look up to are the people who have chosen to show up, not only for me, but for other people. And just that mentality of support and love. I think there are a lot of people that inspire me, both people who I know on a personal level, but also just like public figures. I think the people who most apparently make the short list are my twin sister, Amelia, who has her own story with rare disease and just keeps going and going and going as life kind of 
gets in the way and just doesn't let that stop her. I think one of my good friends, Annie, she is a social worker and she just shows up and shows up and gives endless love to everyone around her and just has this spirit that you can't be around her and not just be happy. The third person that comes to mind is Danielle. She's one of my nurses from a while ago and she just has a special, caring, fierce, mothering personality to her that, again, you can't be around her and not feel absolutely loved to the end of the world. And you definitely don't want to get on her bad side. And then the last person that I think of is the researcher and doctor that I worked with over the summer at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And the job of being a pediatric oncologist is very difficult. You're working in this like life or death situation. And I've only myself gotten a glimpse of it, but she goes above and beyond to like really embrace these families and carry with them, carry their grief, but also their happiness and really work to make that process easier on them, not just as a doctor, but as a support. And I think that is really inspiring to me, trying to help other people manage the difficult and recognize the positive at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that, Annalise, because you are well into your college career. Do you have some pretty impressive goals, some things that you want to do? Tell us a little bit about your future plans and what you want to do. My long-term career goal is to be a clinician scientist. So practice part-time doing work in pediatrics. I love oncology, but there are some other fields that I haven't explored that I might be interested. Definitely working with kids though. And on the side, do research. I think a lot of us think of research as like at a bench or doing clinical trials. And those are so, so important. But I think for me, the type of research I want to do is more about how we interact and how can we make this world more equitable place. So more public health research and more qualitative research about still centering on the medical field, just looking at it from a more communication perspective to try to enhance experiences from that angle. Hmm, interesting. It's amazing what you're doing by taking your experiences and channeling them into a vision for your career that will be life, life impacting and life changing for so many people. So in all you've experienced in your, you know, your short time here on earth and you're just a little over two decades, what would you say you've most learned about human nature? That's a tough question. I think I've learned a couple things. First of all, I think humans by definition are extremely, extremely resilient and everybody kind of just wants to be themselves and it's fighting against other people's perceptions of us and other people's words that make us struggle. And when we can really be ourselves, I think that's when everybody kind of flourishes and can do really amazing things if we can overcome this like societal pressure that has been put on everyone. I think I've also learned that people want to be supportive. They want to love people. It feels so much better when we're happy and loving towards others. And when they're not being that way, it's usually because one of their own needs isn't being met. And while that doesn't always make what they're doing okay, it kind of gives me an understanding of how they are. It's not that they're different or they don't want to love somebody. It's that that's not their current situation. There's something preventing them. 
Yeah. And that's where the boundaries come in for your own self-protection. Yeah. That's a beautiful take on it. So Annalise, as we wrap up here, you, you ended your essay that you shared with us about wanting to be a voice for those other little girls out there who need a voice. You talked about that you didn't have somebody advocating for you when you needed it. And when you were a little girl, if you could go back to that early time, let's say to even to third grade, when you asked the teacher to sit in the corner and to face the wall and you're experiencing some really devastating name calling and bullying and just heartbreaking treatment from other people. If you could go back there now, what would you tell that little girl, little Annalise? I would probably tell her to keep fighting and that while the things she's facing aren't fair to her and feel really hard, she will get through them and there's more to come. Mm. Would you tell her there's hope? Do you think there's hope? I think there is hope. Fun fact, when I was adopted, I changed my middle name to Hope. And I think it's a beautiful symbol for I think as long as we can identify there is hope in a situation, even if it doesn't feel super realistic, if we can hold on to a semblance of hope, there's a reason to keep going and moving forward. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you, Annalise, so much. Thank you for just sharing your heart and your incredible wisdom and your beautiful words with us today. I know so many people are going to be better off for having heard from you today. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support for Making Our Way was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics, Pfizer, and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org.